Well, I think we're going to be refreshed this morning as we hear from Jesus about things that are certain. Few things in life are certain. In fact, I think to say few things in life are certain is an overstatement. It's hard for me to think of anything in life that's actually certain, except that we die. And so we hopefully can be refreshed. Jesus speaks in terms of what is true and what is not true, what absolutely is going to happen, what is inevitable, what is absolutely certain. And that warms my heart to think in terms of what's certain, what's inevitable, what's sure. And this morning in the 16th chapter of Matthew's gospel account, we will hear from Jesus about two certainties, two certainties. First of all, we'll hear about the certainty of his redemptive work, that it is absolutely going to happen. Uh, And then secondly, we'll hear about our response which includes suffering, which isn't altogether refreshing, but at least he tells us ahead of time uh, that you're not going to have um, health, wealth, and prosperity because you're a Christian. As a matter of fact, if you're a Christian, you will have your worst life now. And so with that in mind, it's good that he's honest and he's not trying to sell us something. Uh, He's honest in saying there is suffering involved with being a Christian, but it is the greatest thing ever to be a Christian. And so be encouraged. Let's start by looking at verse 21 when we look and look at this certainty regarding Christ's substitutionary work, his saving work. And we read verse 21 and 21 is fantastic, fabulous, and wonderful. So let's read slow. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I'm not overstating it. We could do a 13-week series on this, if not 37-week. There's so much in here that really represents what Christianity is all about. But we'll do our best to keep things moving this morning. But we do need to to step back a little bit and say, what does this teach us? What what do we learn from this passage about Christ? And uh, what do we learn about God? And what do we learn about ourselves? And what do we learn about the disciples? What do we learn about Israel? So we will take a few minutes to, to savor its riches, if you will. And we begin by recognizing that there's a, there's a big shift happening here. So Jesus has been uh, not in Jerusalem. He's been in the Galilee region. Last time he's in Caesarea Philippi, working and helping uh, Gentiles, non-Jews, with Jews, preaching, doing ministry, loving, showing himself to be the one who is the long-before-promised Messiah. He meets the qualifications. And now things are going to shift. Right now, it's, the, it's the, the slow move, if you will, the deliberate, purposeful move toward Jerusalem. Another thing that we should observe in this, and we're going to see, is that the disciples, while they know some true things that are extraordinarily true, if that's possible, um, they need to know more. Why would I say this? I would say this because last time, when Jesus said, who do people say that I am, and then he, he, he narrowed it in, who do you say that I am? Peter, on behalf of the disciples, said one of the most famous things that a disciple ever said, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded with utter affirmation, didn't he? 
Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, you've received special revelation to know this. This is, this is spot on. And in just a little while, we're going to see that Peter, though he knows true things, he doesn't know the rest of the story, and it's a train wreck to know true things, but to not know all that you need to know, Jesus will call it out as satanic, interestingly enough. And so they need to know more. They need to know what's in verse 21. What it says about Messiah in verse 21, because otherwise we don't have it right. So more is definitely involved. Another thing we should observe from verse 21 is something about the state of Israel at the time. What's the spiritual pulse of the nation of Israel at the time? What's their spiritual state, good or bad? I gave you a false choice. It's not bad. It's terrible, okay? It's worse than bad. I mean, it's unthinkably bad, right? He's going to go to Jerusalem. And and how should that story go if Jerusalem is spiritually healthy or if the Jews are spiritually healthy? It should go. He's going to go to Jerusalem. And what are they going to do? They're going to install him on the throne of David to rule and reign because he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the one they've been saying they're waiting for. But what did our text say? He'll go to Jerusalem and be installed and be anointed and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, the religious authorities who should know and should be the ones recognize him, recognizing him, they're going to be the ones who oppose him. Well, a couple of other things we should notice about verse 21, and then we'll move on. Next on my list would be, we should observe in verse 21 that God has a grand purpose. History is going somewhere. There is a plan. There is a purpose of God. Contrary to what your postmodern English professor might tell you, there is a meta narrative. There is a grand narrative. There is a grand story. No doubt, because this is why Jesus says he must go there. There is a plan. There is a plan that is unfolding. That's why I say the history is going somewhere. There is a bigger story that God is in charge of. He must go to Jerusalem so these things will happen because God determined it to be what needs to happen. When I see the word must in our text, mentally I had to cross-reference to Acts chapter 2 because it's so enlightening to help complement this. Acts 2.23 says, Jesus, it actually says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of God. There's a definite plan of God, and the definite plan of God has to do even with the crucifixion, with the suffering, and with the death, and then following resurrection, which is talked about as well in Acts chapter 2. But we we need to be reminded, again, amidst the, the, the cesspool of lying theories that say there is no meta narrative, there is a meta narrative. There is a big storyline to human history. We got it right here. The definite plan of God. Jesus says we must because he knows God has a definite plan. Can't stress it enough. We also learn one more thing and then we'll move on. We also learn that 
something important about Jesus as it would relate to the definite plan of his father. Jesus is on board. Jesus is arm in arm, if you will, with his father. He's committed to the definite plan, isn't he? Because he himself says he must. He must do this because he is all about his father's will, his father's definite plan. There are so many texts about this. I'll just reference, reference some of them. John eight twenty eight. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's the faithful son, the loyal son. John chapter, that's John chapter 8, verse 29. John 4, 34. My food, in the context, Jesus is talking about what is most important to him, even more important than food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Hebrews 10, 5 says, when Christ came into the world, he said, then down, then down in verse 7, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And we could look at other texts, multiple texts. It's all about doing the Father's will. It's all about the plan. It's all about the decree. It's all about the purpose. It's all about fulfilling. He's going to fulfill the new covenant. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper today. Yeah, there is an old covenant. He's going to meet those obligations, but he actually, it's the new covenant in his blood. The Old Testament promised a new covenant. He is going to be the one. And you don't have new covenant fulfillment if you don't have suffering, substitutionary death, and resurrection. I must go to Jerusalem. The Son is committed to the plan. It is their plan. It is their purpose. It's why it is a must. And as it would relate to that, I want to include all of us in the passage. Sometimes I kid and say we, we, we err and we try to find ourselves in every verse of the Bible and make it all about us. Um, and a lot of times it, it's all applicable somehow, but not directly. And a lot of times it's not about us. This is about us. Okay. This is about us. And I'm not trying to manipulate your emotions or play off of of your emotions. Um, But this is about us. Remember 121, he came to save his people from their sins. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are one of his people. And he must go to Jerusalem suffering, dying, making atonement for sin for his people, right? I came to save my people from their sins. He will be raised again. Yes, for him to vindicate him. First Timothy chapter 3 talks about. Yes, it's for that reason, but also he will be raised for, Romans says, for our justification. And so you should feel emotional about this if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we sing that he had us on his mind. And, you know, sometimes the... I question everything, right? I'm like, well, are we singing that just to make us feel good? Or Actually, he did. He came to save his people from their sins. And he must go to Jerusalem. He did what he did, my friends. Because he loved us. Ephesians 5 says, and gave himself up for us. I love the must. I must go. 
And it is why, as we're about to read, Peter has absolutely no clue (laughs) about what he's talking about. And if he would have been successful, there would be no hope for us. And there would be no hope for Peter. I must go. I must suffer. I must be crucified. I must be raised. Read it in light of our greater context because I came to save my people from their sins. I just go, yes. I love the must. I love the purpose. I love the plan. I love that there is one and he is the one carrying it out. I think there are probably other reasons, but I promised I was only going to do two, two more things we need to learn, so we need to move on now. And so we're going to move on to verse 22 where it says, horrifically, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. What in the world, right? And there are two, two words really that, that are meant to be in contrast that I hope you're seeing between verse 21 and verse 22, the two words being what? I must, this must happen, and now Peter says to the sovereign Messiah's must, he says what? He says never. It's cosmically wrong. It just could, couldn't be more wrong or off track. Must, I must, the sovereign one. Never, never. I guess we can sympathize a little bit. Think about the spring that he would have had in his step, right? I mean, he's, Peter's feeling good about himself. If you were Peter, you would feel good about yourself too in light of what just happened, right? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, right? Simon son of Jonah, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, not only that, keys for loosing, for unlocking and locking, I will build my church. The gates of, of, of Hades or hell will not prevail against it. Man, I'm feeling good. We're going to conquer, Right? Not even death can stop us from doing this. And he's so right. But you've got to know more or being half right is really bad. And so, let's keep going. Oh, Before we move on, maybe... No, no, we're ready to move on. Verse 23. Thank you for listening to my conversation in my own head. Uh, things get weird. <laughs> Verse 23 says, But he turned and said to Peter, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, like substitutionary atonement, right? On the things of God, but on the things of man. Maybe, maybe this helps us to better understand verse 20. If you look back, we we covered it last week on the fly. I said, verse 20 has nothing to do with your life. (laughs) Remember that that kind of tongue-in-cheek because it's it's when the disciples were told not to tell anybody that Jesus is the Christ. And I I think it, I'm still with what I said last week. I think it's there because he says what he says because it's not time yet, right? There's something unfolding and it's not the appropriate time yet. I still think that's true. But think of it also in these terms. Peter Peter would have half the message right, right? His evangelism would would be half-baked at best, right? 
And actually, in light of what Jesus is going to say, Messiah, King, without a cross, Jesus is going to use harsher words than half-baked. Pretty intense what he's going to say. Let's not do evangelism now lest it be satanic. And that brings me to an important point. If we step back and we think about what Jesus is saying to Peter, who has a lot of things right, a huge thing right, but no suffering, no substitutionary death, no resurrection, get behind me, Satan. So let's think of it in these terms. A Christianity, let's put it in our terms, a Christianity that lacks the substitutionary suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus is not Christianity. And if we say it's Christianity, if we say that's the gospel, I think we're right in siding with Jesus. We should say that's satanic. And this is a pretty big deal. Because think of all of the things that are done in the name of gospel, all the things that are right insofar as it goes regarding Jesus, regarding God, regarding lots of different things, but they don't want to talk about the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You know, because that's controversial. Um, blood, atonement, that assumes sin, uh, I, that I need a Savior. That goes on all the time. And I think the right label for that is, that's satanic. Because that doesn't save anybody. There's no forgiveness apart from atonement. There's no justification apart from a righteous life, even the life of suffering. There is none, neither apart from resurrection. There's no Messiah. So let's learn from that. Let's learn from that. Let's learn that if I stand up here and tell you all sorts of things that are true about God, and maybe I tell you that it's the gospel, but it's actually not including things that are essential to the gospel, let's have you say, that's satanic, is what I would want you to do. Think about how right Peter was. And it's not that Peter has to know everything. It's not that I have to know everything. It's not that you have to know everything. But a king, a Messiah king, without the cross is not the true Messiah king. We've got to remember that. We have to keep that in mind. If you recall back in chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by the devil. And what does the devil promise Jesus? The kingdoms of the world. Which is another way of saying he promises for him to be the Christ. Another way for him to, to, he promises him to be the Messiah. But you can be the Messiah exaltation without the humiliation of the cross. And he's Satan. And now Peter is playing the role. He's, he's, he's doing satanic things. And so he calls him out and labels him satanic. And he labels him Satan. Heavy stuff, huh? Real heavy stuff. But it's good and it's right because this is the very thing that threatens the gospel that's good news to us. And so you got to call him out for it because otherwise we don't have the truth and we don't have the gospel. We don't have eternal life.
And so Jesus does the right thing. How about this? Because he loves Peter. We know he does. He's willing to call him out even like this. Let's move on. Let's move on now to the second certainty. And that's the certainty of the Christian's cross, which sounds kind of strange. I know, but it won't in just a moment. This is the next certainty, the Christian's cross. Verse 24 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So notice he broadens the the, the net. He broadens the scope. He's not only addressing the twelve or the 12 plus their friends or other disciples. He says, if anyone, he says, if anyone, if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to be my follower, if anyone wants to attach themselves to me as the Messiah, like you, you, you guys did. It's another way of saying any, if anyone, anyone is a Christian, right? If anyone believes that I am the Christ, the Messiah, if anyone wants to do that, just know that what you do when you do that is you deny yourself, right? You prioritize, to borrow from Jesus, the things of God, not the things of man, which is what he said earlier. You prioritize, um, you deny self. It's not all about you doing whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it. No, it's you take up your cross. That's not a positive. The positive is the eternal life that we receive. No one wants to hear anything about taking up a cross, right? Right? And remember, Jesus wasn't the first person to be crucified, right? Thousands of people were crucified by the Romans. They're crucifixion experts. And so when he says this to Peter, Peter knows full well, the disciples know full well what crucifixion looked like, like, what it was about. It meant execution. It meant pain and suffering. It's not what you want. But Jesus says, I'm going to go and suffer and be crucified. And you need to know that anyone who wants to attach themselves to me, come after me, is going to need to deny themselves. Jesus is all about the Father's will, right? And so you're going to be all about the Father's will. You're attaching yourself to Christ. And you're going to take up your cross and follow him. (sighs) Now, what what doesn't that mean? It, It doesn't mean like we say in our culture, well, you know, we've all got crosses to bear. You know, your boss is a tyrant or uh, you've got one of those in-laws, you know. Not that anyone in this room does, but um, we all have our crosses to bear and we all have hardships in life is, is how the saying goes. But he, he clearly doesn't mean that. I know you know he doesn't mean that, but don't take my word for it. He's not addressing all of humanity. See, all of humanity is living in a sin-affected world. So, all of humanity is suffering, suffers because it's a broken world. He's not saying that. It's whoever wants to come after me, right? So it narrows the group. So he's clearly not talking about suffering in general. We all suffer, okay? That's why we're longing, even with the creation, according to Romans 8, for, for the return of Christ where there is no more suffering. We all suffer. But he's saying here there's an extra suffering for you. You come after me, you take up your cross kind of suffering. What does that mean? Here's a, here's a great way to, I've thought long and hard about how we can encapsulate that and make that simple. What does that mean? It's the suffering associated with being a Christian. Not the suffering associated with being a human being in a broken world, 
but it's the suffering associated with you belonging to Christ, you attaching yourself to Christ, you being a Christian. In fact, if it helps you, you could write it down this way. Take up your suffering associated with being a Christian. And crucifixion is is for sure death. Not all Christians die. Some of these here will. Not all of them will be crucified. But the point is the point. When you sign up to belong to Jesus in this world, it might even mean your death. You take up your cross. But it does definitely mean suffering. Okay? So when you sign up to be a Christian, you're signing up for perfect forgiveness, reconciliation, but you are signing up for suffering. Okay? And he, he, he's very... This isn't for super Christians. This isn't for the really committed Christians. Remember John 15, verse 20? Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The Apostle Paul says something similar in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all, so it's all-inclusive, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So there are those promises in the Bible, the kind we don't like, but they're there, and we should be honest and say they're there. He told us. Now, what does this look like for us? Well, if I'm a Christian, I believe Jesus is the one and only Messiah. By definition. You may have never stopped to think about it, but that's what Christians believe. And, And if that's the case, He's the one and only one who came to save His people from their sins. He's the one and only... To quote Him elsewhere, if I'm a Christian, I believe Jesus... I believe in him and I also believe him. He said there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So I believe that. So I believe certain things about salvation and that's going to create conflict. It's going to create conflict. Uh, I also believe there's such a thing as sin because why would I need a savior to save me from my sin if there's no such thing as sin? And so that's going to create conflict. Um, People need saving because they're sinful and all have sinned. That's going to create conflict. Um, I believe there's such a thing as right and wrong. And so I believe in absolutes. I believe in certain things to be true and not true. I believe uh, in certain things about morality and immorality, life and death, sexuality. I'm a Christian, so I believe what Christ believes. I believe what He said. He speaks the truth about it. And all of the things I just said can bring suffering in my life. Whether it's on the job, in the church, in the family, with parents, with kids, there is suffering associated with being a Christian. All who come after me, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow me. I can't get out of it. I can't get out of it. It goes with the territory. It doesn't encourage me. It doesn't make me happy. I don't like pain and suffering. I want my life to go as smoothly as possible. And I want my relationships to be good relationships. I don't want to suffer. But I have to know that if I'm a Christian, there's going to be a rub probably won't cost me my life in the 21st century living in Omaha, Nebraska. Costs other people their life. 
It might cost me some other things that I hold dearly. And it might cost you other things you hold dearly as well. But do notice, Jesus is rather clear about it. It's the case for all Christians. Now what Jesus does is he reinforces his statement with logic. So this is a big deal. This is a big pill to swallow. And so he gives multiple logical statements that come to kind of bolster his argument, to encourage us and help us to, to know that he, what he's saying is reasonable. might not be good news, uh, but it is reasonable news to, to be loyal to Christ even if it costs you. And so even the, the English translation I'm preaching from today, the ESV, gives three, four statements, F-O-R, offering rationality and reasonableness. So I'm just going to follow those. If you look with me there in verse 25, you can see four. Here's, here's rationale. Here's reinforcing statements. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, that's, it's kind of counterintuitive. But if I stop and think he, about him being the one who brings salvation and resurrection makes more sense. So, so really what I'm looking for is to be associated with him and I'm going to find true significance in life and I'm going to find eternal life. So that, that, that makes the most sense. I want to pursue the things of God, not the things of man, in other words. And it's reasonable. It's a win for the believer in the end, even if it might be a lose in the short run. Then 26 says, For what would profit a man? if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What's the answer to that? Nothing. Nothing. What good would that be? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Well, I wouldn't give anything in return for my soul if I'm a rational person, if I'm thinking clearly, if I can step back and, and, and see the big picture. My soul has to do with eternity and will last forever. Um, I wouldn't trade that for anything. I wouldn't trade that for anything as wonderful as it could possibly be, whether it's on a relationship level or any other kind of level. You'd be an idiot when it comes to investments. You've got to think long-term here. And if you just are not an idiot spiritually, we know sin is blinding and creates idiocy, but by God's grace, if you're just a thinking person, attach yourself to Jesus even if it means suffering because we're talking about our souls and that's the long game. That's the long game. Even though I so badly don't want to be hurt and I so badly want to get along and I so badly want to succeed and be esteemed, I've got to think bigger picture. I've got to think bigger picture. Then he says in verse 27, for the son of man, this one's harsh. This is, this is motivation by fear. And I don't make any, any apologies for it. This is motivation by fear. For the son of man, that's Christ, the Messiah, the King. That's the title we've been seeing. For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That's not good news. That's a threat. That's a threat that's actually a promise. That's actually going to happen, right? He's saying, now, think, think reasonably. There's a day coming when, when 
The Son of Man will be sent by His Father. The Messiah will be sent to bring judgment, to give people what they deserve. There's a day coming. The clock is ticking. It's on the calendar. The day is coming when this is going to happen. So why in the world would you try to live for the easy life and deny Christ? It would be insane. It would be absolutely as pleasurable and wonderful as the here and now stuff might be. Are you out of your mind? There is a day of reckoning, an ultimate day of reckoning. On that day, your loyalties will make all the difference. We won't take the time to go there other than I'll reference it. You can look it up if you'd like. But this reminds me of Psalm 2, and it should remind me of Psalm 2, and I think it should remind us of Psalm 2. I'll read verse 12 in just a moment. But Psalm 2 is quoted again and again and again, and probably again in the New Testament, and it's uh, messianic prophecy. And it's hard-hitting because the resurrected Christ will be resurrected And when he's resurrected, he will be affirmed as the Messiah, officially. Today I have begotten you. Uh, The way the New Testament uses that, it's not about incarnation. It's not about the birth. Today I have begotten you without any question. When you look at how it's used in the New Testament, quoting Psalm 2, it's when Jesus is resurrected. He's acknowledged, he's affirmed, he's anointed, if you will, as the Messiah. He's installed, to use the Psalm 2 language, as Messiah, okay? And he is going to pour out the wrath of God on evildoers as the Messiah, according to Psalm 2. Now, that doesn't sound very exciting. It doesn't sound very warm. It doesn't sound very positive, and it's not, but it ends beautifully. Listen to how Psalm 2 ends. The psalmist says, kiss the son. Kiss the sun, as in think of ancient world, pay homage to, right? Show proper respect. Kiss the sun, maybe his hand, maybe his ring. You're acknowledging his authority. Kiss the sun, S-O-N. Acknowledge that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who's in charge. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But then it ends also wonderfully. I love the way it ends. Messianic prophecy regarding Christ. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's wrathful. It's strong. God is going to get you, you evildoers. Justice day is coming. There's a day of reckoning. That's Psalm 2. And then it's, how do I escape? How do I get away from this resurrected judgment son? What, what, what can I do? Kiss the son. Pay homage to the son. Take refuge in the son. Because that's where you find safety from his judgment is by resting in Him. It's awesome. I want to preach Psalm 2 right now badly. So when Jesus gives this somber, sober warning, hey, it'd be a good idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read in. I'm going to use Psalm 2 verbiage. It'd be a really good idea, understatement, to take refuge in me and to keep taking refuge in me even if it means suffering in the here and now because judgment day is coming. And the only way to escape judgment day 
is to be taking refuge in the one who's none other than the appointed judge. That's where safety is found. It doesn't make any sense to stop our taking refuge in the Son because there's earthly opposition. 28 then says, and we're going to wrap it up with this, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And I'll say what I say so often when there's multiple views. Whatever that means, it's good. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's a, it's a huge grand statement, right? It's a massive statement. Some of, he's saying, some who are right here with me now won't taste death until they see Messiah coming in his kingdom. I mean, that's a, that's a huge promise. That's a massive promise. Now, I know that he doesn't mean second coming full-orbed and he's actually telling lies because he says some of you won't taste death until you see this. See where I'm going? If it's second coming full-orbed kingdom in its ultimate consummated sense, there is no more death. And so that's a little clue, an interpretive clue we have actually in the verse. He doesn't mean that. Because they're going to see... And they're going to die. If they're going to see second coming, inaugurated, excuse me, not inaugurated, consummated kingdom, they would never die. They're going to die. So what is it? That's the first clue What he doesn't about what he doesn't mean. Some take it to mean the transfiguration because that's what comes in chapter 17 and that might be right. I probably taught it that way before. I probably won't emphasize it today, but might be right. Transfiguration, we'll see it in chapter 17, where there's this unique glimpse, foretaste of Jesus in his glorified sense, and some of the disciples get to witness it and see it, and that would encourage them. Oh, if that's who he is, I'm willing to suffer. And that's certainly true no matter what, even if that's what he doesn't mean here, it might be what he means here. Another possibility, and I'll emphasize this one today. Some of you here right now, he says to those disciples, won't taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Another possibility is you're going to see me resurrected, installed resurrected. Right? Today I have begotten you. He's anointed as the Messiah, as the Son of Man at the resurrection, according to Psalm 2, Romans chapter 1, and the book of Hebrews, and the book of Acts. The resurrection is the big deal where it shows for all to see that He's officially acknowledged by the Father as the Messiah. And not only that, some of you won't taste death till you see that. Some of you won't, to go even further, they will also, some of these, see the ascension. Acts chapter 1, the ascension where a king ascends to his throne. When he ascends to heaven, he's ascending to his throne. That's what, that's what a Messiah does. And some of them right there are going to see that happen before their very eyes. They're also going to see other kingdom things happen because anytime someone is united to Christ by faith through the gospel, they are a new creation. That's kingdom talk, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Anyone is in Christ, anyone who's in Messiah... So now we're going to see fruitfulness of this happening. And here's why it's important in our context. 
By taking refuge in me, Jesus is saying, you have atonement, forgiveness, reconciliation, resurrection, all of those good things and more. You're going to suffer. But I'm not a prophet. I'm not a dead savior who made a bunch of promises. And, you know, wink, wink, take it on faith. It's all true. No. Some of you standing right here, right now, will see with your own eyes as eyewitnesses me raised from the dead. Officially declared Messiah through resurrection and ascension. (laughs) You're not idiots. Think about it. If we were going to suffer to the point maybe of even death for some guru from who knows where whose body's now been eaten by bugs, what a bunch of fools. The Apostle Paul even says, you, you of all people should be pitied. You're, you're a bunch of wackadoodles. Stop wasting your time. Suffer for that? That? Well... If it's the resurrected, ascended one, sign me up. Sign me up. I'll take refuge in him, even if it means suffering in the here and now life. It's only reasonable. It's encouraging. Let's end with this. Two important categories. Okay? I'm going to use cross for shorthand for all that Christ does. Okay, I'm going to include resurrection in that just to make things simple, but don't get me wrong. There's more involved in Christ's redemptive work than just the cross. But let's think of Christ's cross, category number one, and then our cross, category number two. Two important categories, but two categories you've got to keep separate. Okay? You've got to keep separate. His cross is redemptive. His cross makes atonement. His cross, His suffering, His resurrection, I know all of those things, brings all of the gifts of the gospel to us. Remember, He came to save His people from their sins. He didn't come to give us crosses so that we could all save ourselves. He didn't come to make us savable, and as long as we take up our cross enough, then we're going to be saved. He came to save His people from their sins via His redemptive work, we're shorthanding in that his cross. His cross saves. Our cross doesn't save, right? Our cross is a response to his salvation. And maybe we could say it sanctifies or something like that. Maybe I don't even want to say that at this point in time. But they're different. They're both important. We should emphasize both of them. We don't want to trick people and say, hey, you know, you have your sins forgiven and life is wonderful. No, let's make sure we talk about our crosses, but let's make sure that we don't talk about our crosses without the context of his cross, which preachers do sometimes. And it sounds a lot like you're going to get to heaven because you're such a good cross bearer. And that would be another form of demonic preaching. Two really good and important categories. (laughs) Let's make sure that we know what the differences are. My cross doesn't save me or anybody else. It's a response to the only cross that saves, the cross of Christ. Let's think clearly about this. And as we eat and drink now, we're going to do it in remembrance of His cross, which motivates me to want to take up my cross, because He is the mediator of the new covenant. Father, thank You for this morning. It's been a great time 
thinking together about your word and what it means and the significance for us, for our life and for our living. Um, Embolden us. Embolden us to be faithful servants of yours in this world. We long for the day when Christ returns where there won't be any suffering of any kind, even suffering for being associated with Christ. We long for that day, but in the meantime, we long even for those who cause us suffering to see Jesus for who he really is and to trust in him so that we too can share in sweet fellowship with them. In Jesus' name, amen.